This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Each week we do a piece of work and a concept. Today it's the film The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962 on the theme masculinity. Helen, kick us off. Okay, and mine is a little bit long because I whacked in a really long quote at the beginning. So we'll get through the quote and then... The bourgeoisie, whenever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors, and has left remaining no other nexus between man and man than naked self-interest, than callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervour, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of philistine sentimentalism, in the icy waters of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value and in place of the numberless indefeasible chartered freedoms has set up that single unconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal brutal exploitation. Marx paints no cosy resolution in ridding society of a so-called patriarchy. Conveniently for capital, the world before its own rise was not too rosy either. Since commodity fetishism does such a good job of concealing the naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation of our age, we often look to clearer manifestations of unpleasant things in the past, in past orders, to convince ourselves soothingly that we have facile agents in abating contemporary suffering. If we can just rid ourselves of the cultural issues that beset past orders, those dying embers that still operate, it is fashionable to say, structurally or subconsciously, we can blot out all and every incidence of suffering in our contemporary world. But this notion, prevalent as it is, is a fantasy. It misses the subtle, concealed reality of how capitalism actually functions. Fantasy is like religion. It suggests that a utopian world can be earned and that suffering in the here and now can be excused if only pesky, contingent annoyances the dominance of men, for example, could be expunged if only an individual or social order could be blanched and purified. Fantasy operates always on a promise for the future, but in the words of Belinda Carlyle, heaven is a place on earth. Fantasy prevents us from doing the difficult work of encountering the emancipatory present. Instead, it allows us to tolerate an intolerable world. Fantasy acts as the flowers on the chains of our true oppression. In a less often cited passage, Marx says, Criticism has plucked the imaginary flowers on the chain, not in order that man shall continue to bear that chain without fantasy or consolation, but so that he shall throw off the chain and pluck the living flower. There is a world apart from the egregious oppression of our age. The solution is not to close our eyes to it and imagine fantastical flowers, rather by exposing oppression to the light of day, by viewing it and truly understanding it, contradictions and all, we can step away from it and see that there is a present where living flowers do actually exist. To understand the functionings of our social order and the impression that it engenders requires reason. To be reasonable is difficult, particularly given the highly obfuscating nature and the magical promise of the market system. To be reasonable requires us to grapple with the nature of subjectivity, of desire and therefore the unconscious, it requires us, as the Hegelian Marx knew, to come to terms with the intractable role of contradiction. Like all good drama, the man who shot Liberty Valance treats contradiction well. It elucidates the contradictory nature of violence and justice, what is condoned and what is outlawed. It shows that social order is required, 
but that the choice of who we elect and whose acts of violence we condone is not neutral. The violence of liberty valence is blatantly bad. It prevents the solidification of civilization in this part of the West. His violence terrorizes the populace. The impotent Marshal Appleyard can do nothing to stop him. The violence of the learned Rance Stoddard is lauded. He is educated and intelligent. The majority of the film establishes justification for his act. He is seen as a hero. Sorry, I for a second. He's seen as a hero and the legend of his bravery sees him elected senator. Tom Donovan, the outsider, unwillingly, for example, uh, sorry, unwilling, for example, to take on a political role, is the one to actually kill Liberty Valance. His act of violence is conveniently overlooked. He is not celebrated, at least within the world of the film. He dies in obscurity. The rule of law is required to allow society to flourish, but the acceptance of the instigation of the rule of law and also of unjustified violence by certain figures and not others is ideological. The role of law and order isn't black and white. The same goes for the film's ambivalent treatment of the question of patriarchy. Patriarchy today seems to be treated to be taken to mean a secret network of men's accumulated disdain for women and a hidden intention to keep them down at all costs. In the film, we see that the reality of these old forms of societal organisation are more mixed. Patriarchy also means paternalism, protection and relief. As Marx states, patriarchal relations have been replaced by naked self-interest and callous cash payments. Today, today, this can leave us feeling anxious, depressed and confused. This is not to say that we should deliberately reinstate patriarchal male leaders enforced monogamy a la Peterson, but rather that certain contemporary societal symptoms say something about our own ambivalent needs and desires. We don't need paternalism, patriarchy, or perhaps even parentalism, but we can't do without systems that protect us from the worst ravages of things. We need relief from the onslaught of rampant individualism and the ever greater exposure we face to constant exploitation. We need community, we need structure, we need relief. And we need these things to be built politically from a place of dialectical reason, the kind of ambivalent reason of which the best drama is capable, so that we don't fall into the hypnotising sway of the obfuscating market system and make our predicament through the promise of purity actually even worse. All right. Nina, you're up. Okay, yeah. I mean, uh, what a great origin story. This film reminded me of Deadwoods, which is a very interesting um, series that was cut too short, uh, I think by HBO, which um, told in uh, even more detail, I suppose, the um, the history of the beginnings of a kind of capitalist civilization and how you actually found um, a society, as Hobbes says in uh, Leviathan, that goes beyond the state of nature. So how do you actually get beyond a situation in which there's merely um, a, a form of equality in the form of uh, violent confrontation or potentially violent confrontation in which there is no um, industry, no culture, no um, none of these things that have the dimension of futurity, um, which would be something beyond the state of nature. And I think... You know, one of the things that this film does absolutely brilliantly is to point out the precise foreclosure of the violence, as Helen said, at the heart of every civilization, right? The disavowed moment. Um, the thing that people don't want to admit is at the heart of everything that seems reasonable and civilizational and 
um, non-violent is um, deeply related to this question of violence. Also, the relationship between women and men. And I think that this film is also about hypergamy, <laughs> which is a classic term used by uh, men's rights activists and the red pill community and men online, which is to suggest that women um, have a, a kind of evolutionary psychological tendency to pick the best man, quote unquote. Um, and in this film, the idea is that um, the the female lead, um, Cassie, switches her allegiance in a way between the John Wayne character, who is a kind of old school, um, uh, immediate eye for an eye type justice character, who's who also has a, a kind of sympathetic uh, element, right? As in, he's not as sociopathic as um, Liberty Valence or Valence. <laughs> as you might say, because freedom is always a question of valence. Um, and, but it's, it's nevertheless rough, you know, and like he gives her a desert rose, not a real rose, and she doesn't know the difference. And it's only through a kind of Pygmalion type education at the hands of the, the you know, effete, potentially effete man, that she comes to understand in a way the difference between the uneducated and the educated man as such and in the end opts for the educated man who at the same time tries to be the cowboy and the, the kind of I suppose this question of the hidden violence and I, I think in a way the film leaves it open actually who shot Liberty Valance I mean although of course you accept John Wayne's story that he did it nevertheless <sighs> The setup of the triangulation, the scene in which Liberty Valance is actually is killed, and and I guess one of the points is that he has to be killed, right? Like, what do you do in a society with the sociopath? You know, and we still have this problem today. I mean, we're a society overrun by narcissists and sociopaths, and this question of desire, and people like this will always try to take hold of politics. And it's a big problem for people who regard themselves as um, being gentle and non-violent. Like, what do you do with people who are absolutely violent, right? So, <laughs> or who are prepared to take any measure to get what they want? It's a it's a massive, massive problem because most people don't want to recognise these tendencies in themselves. So, unless you can recognise the sociopathy of yourself, you can't sort of deal with it in the other, even though the other is absolutely destructive. And I think this film presents that dilemma very well, like the difference between the state, a state of nature and a state of law, let's say, or the question of wild justice and principled justice, let's say. And, you know, so the female character is is positioned as the one who decides what's more attractive, actually. And she's still torn, the fact that she leaves the desert rose on the end, on the coffin, and says she does. And the fact that um, the James Stewart character, it's not clear that he's ever told her that the John Wayne character was the one who said he did it, Right. And so James Stewart is trading off of the idea that he's the man who shot Liberty Valance and is therefore allowed, permitted to be the lawmaker, right? But he hasn't told her that he wasn't, right? But it's like this question of manliness between 
I don't know, different images of what it means to be a man. And um, there's a way in which the John Wayne, his sort of atavistic arsonism and his destruction, of course, is the flip side of the the violent sociopath, right? Like they're the same kind of person in a certain way, the same kind of man, except one is on the side of protection and the other is on the side of destruction, even though they're both destructive. <laughs> but the law is equally destructive, I suppose. So maybe there are three different kinds of violence that women have to choose between. I'll leave it there. All right, I'm up. <laughs> the man who shot Liberty Valance offers us two kinds of men. One, played by John Wayne, is a physical guy who is good at shooting stuff. The other, played by James Stewart, is an educated lawyer who has no idea what to do with a gun. The two men occupy two entirely different social roles, but they need to work together to protect the town from Liberty Valance, a marauding brigand who dominates the region through terror. The gunslinger protects the lawyer from Valance, while the lawyer gets the territory statehood and secures its safety permanently. The two men come from opposite ends of America's cultural divide, but in this film they work toward a common goal, one that neither can achieve alone. When the lawyer tries to deal with Valance without the gunslinger, he gets beat up. When the gunslinger tries to deal with Valance without the lawyer, the reprieve is only temporary. To defend common interests, the working man and the educated professional have to come together and find a way to respect each other's contributions. The film came out in 1962. It's one of those old westerns directed by John Ford. You'd have every right to expect it to be fundamentally reactionary. But while it is certainly committed to post-war liberal ideology, it's striking how thoughtful that ideology was. In many ways, the film features a real thick commitment to diversity. It invites us to value both kinds of men, both classes, both cultures. It shows us how the country needed both elements to get where it is. They couldn't make liberty balance today. If they did, they'd have to spend the whole film dunking on John Wayne. They'd miss the point entirely. As the culture war is heated up, we've lost the ability to imagine the gunslinger and the fancy lawyer on the same side. Much of our politics is about pitting these two kinds of men against each other. While the John Waynes and the James Stewarts eye each other with suspicion, the Liberty Valances get to go on marauding and pillaging. If only we could stop arguing about who's a real man, who's smart and who's not, whose values are real and whose are fake, we might be able to see where the real exploitation is coming from. In 1962, this is a relatively simple film celebrating the inclusiveness of the post-war consensus. But in 2021, the idea of Wayne and Stewart on the same team is downright subversive. The idea that statehood could mean so much to people, that politics really could make a difference in people's quality of life, cuts against the seeming inevitability of our end of history. The ideology of the past is a challenge to the ideology of the future. This is in part why the past has to be demonized and uttered as a period of moral failure. The same goes for a certain kind of masculinity, the kind we associate with people like John Wayne or John Hamm. But in this film, we see John Wayne defend a black man against prejudice. We see John Wayne get rejected by a woman and accept that rejection gracefully. We don't see all the things we are told we are supposed to see in 1962. There have always been many kinds of men and many ways for those men to see the world around them. The crisis of masculinity isn't new. It is an old crisis faced by every young man who ever tried to make his way 
to find a role that worked for him. What's new is the idea that these types of men have fundamentally incommensurable values, that they must look down their noses at one another, that they must vote for different parties and regard one another as enemies in some terrible cultural struggle. Brilliant. No, that's 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 really good. I mean, I tried to suggest a third man, I suppose, <laughs> in the form of the Lee Marvin character. You know, I mean, there are three types of men, let's say, in the film, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. But it, I mean, it, but it's not. It, it's that's not to sort of um, criticize anything you said, which which I agree with. But but it's like Lee Marvin is also still a man, no. I mean, his character, Liberty Valance is a man. Yeah, he's not really treated as a man. They kind of treat him as a beast. Right, but unless you also want to say he's a beast. I mean, what would we do? Like, you're saying that today's society wouldn't be able to cope with the John Wayne character, which I agree, and, and that they would be dichotomized with the James Stewart character. But at the same time, what would we do with a Lee Marvin character today? Well, I think the tendency today is to treat all the John Waynes as Lee Marvins. Right. I don't disagree. Right. The, but the 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 uh, so the West is a society that operates on sort of violence and killing people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe the the beasts are operating uh, on a different register. <laughs> but I mean, it's a fundamental problem for not only men but for humanity, right? So there are yeah. two separate aspects of this. I mean, one of which would be you know, men dealing with the fact of their own, the bestiality of their own sex in its mm -hmm. differentiated nature. And then there would be the question of human beings as such dealing with their own animality collectively, right? And, you know, the whole history of the of Western thought in a way is to tie women to nature in a certain way in which women have themselves dealt with oppositionally or antagonistically at certain points or in forms of acceptance. Um but I, I wonder if, like, the nature of of men qua sex um, is also being posed. It's like it's still it's still a big problem. What do men do when some men behave in a way that is absolutely disruptive to the social or civil order? I mean, do you feel interpolated as a man when men do terrible things? Well, so I think that really the, the warlord is just a different version of the oligarch, of the Jeff Bezos, of the Bill Gates. You know, the warlord is, is the rich person who does the exploiting, the person who takes advantage of their power over other people. And so what I kind of wanted to suggest there is that the liberty valances of today are not so much the criminal that we talk about and, and treat as you know, the frightening mass shooter type. I mean, that person is really quite marginal. And is engaging in violence not from a position of strength, like a warlord, but from a position of weakness as a deeply marginalized subject. The people who are more like Liberty Valance now are the rich oligarchs who run the capitalist system. But I mean, I, I, I apologize for pushing this point. I mean, they're all still men, <laughs> no? Whether they're the boss of Amazon or um, sociopaths who are in prison for murdering multiple people. Yeah, I, I think that. One of the things that is difficult, especially in left-wing organizations, to accept is that people like power. Uh, men like power. I like power. What we, is power? We, I say this as someone who has this as my damn name. We like to get other people to do what we think they should do. Why? Uh, we, <laughs> this is, yeah. 
No, no, I mean, I'm, I'm super fascinated by this question because I can't imagine anything worse than getting other people to do what I want them to do. Because oh, I don't yes, know what that would the be. The thing is that you, you never actually want to get it. You, you, you think you want this. You think you want other people to do what you want them to do. Yeah. But if you actually get them to do that, then they lose interest for you. But Hegel makes this point already. Like, it's obvious. Like, if someone does what you tell them to do, you, you don't respect them anymore. Right, right. The, fu- the, the thing that a lot of people really enjoy is the struggle to get people to do what they want. And I, I think for a lot of men, the best kind of person to marry is someone who you are perpetually trying to get to do what you want, and you're never quite succeeding in getting them to do like a badly trained who, puppy or something. Well, who have a certain stubbornness and a certain rigidity, and won't just do what you want, but are willing to put up with you constantly trying to get them to do uh, what you want. Uh, the struggle is real. I, I do think that there's a lot of attraction on the part of men to struggle and agonism. Uh, and I, I think you see this even even uh, in political theory. There, There's a whole genre of political theorists who just explicitly straight up says what is really great about life is struggling and agonism. Uh, in, in the case of you know, Nietzsche and Schmidt, it's you know, violent struggle, violent agonism. Who are openly celebrating that is what we should be trying to do. Even Hannah Arendt, who of course uh, abhors violence, positions her ideal society as a struggle for status through uh, impressive rhetorical gestures. But I want to say that 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 that's actually slightly different in the sense it's a recognition of the reality of different interests and the fact that people are different. You know that 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 acknowledging the reality of agonism as a political um, situation. I mean, not only is closer to the truth, uh, and Aristotle would say this too, but but also is a preventative recognition against forms of um, hegemony and homogeneity, right? So rather than saying everyone should think the same thing and everyone should want the same thing, you know, and that this is what we should be aiming towards, it's a recognition, a celebration almost of the fact that people... Um, by virtue of the fact that they are have different capacities and needs and interests and bodies, even um, I don't know, we'll we'll always be in a sense in a process of negotiation. I think the problem comes when people say there is no negotiation. My desires take precedent, you know, or my desires are more important than yours are, right? Which is often what we're up against today. I think. Well, I think in, in Nietzsche's account, the, the struggle is among people who genuinely want to win, genuinely want to, to win. And the way that Nietzsche prevents them from winning is to break up the nation states, turn them into city states, turn the units of, of domination into small enough units that even if somebody wins in a particular place, they can't win everywhere all the time in a permanent way. Uh, but the Nietzschean man is still trying to win all the time in a permanent way. The Nietzschean man still wants to be Alexander the Great. I don't know. I think perspectivalism is a embrace of the, I don't know, the multiplicity of perspectives, right? So for Nietzsche, strength is something like being able to acknowledge the absolute variety of different viewpoints, even on a tree, for example, like the scientific reading of the tree, the chemical reading, the biological, the spiritual, the mythical you know, the story about the tree, you know, the poem about the tree. It's like strength is not um, so narrow. 
you know, it's not this narrow definition of power in terms of domination. I, I think it's actually beyond that. And in fact, in many cases, it would be a recognition of the fact that domination and strength is actually a pathetic position to have. Like, it's not a position of power at all. Because you, what do you win by, you know, smashing your enemy? Nothing. It's much more interesting to acknowledge their difference and talk to them and so on. And, and maybe this is an overly diplomatic or feminine reading of Nietzsche. It's possible. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I think what's being proposed in a certain sense by what you're saying or, or kind of implied is a kind of patchwork idea, ultimately, that, that there will always be a kind of, um, set of differences and and hasn't humanity tried all these things internationalism globalism you know various forms of domination whether it's through the market or through ideology like it's really boring i think isn't it better to go back to absolute difference uh in terms of uh, different communities different practices um different beliefs you know this is a much more fascinating world the world that's I mean, maybe it's not possible because it's been destroyed. I do, I do like this sort of universal, um, like deliberation and universal conflict, as in like it's sort of the, the 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 struggle is is within the collective rather than the struggle is within the individual struggling for dominance, and the collective struggle of individuals creates something, but that the struggle should be within the collective space. But is it is that like is that a necessarily feminine thing? Maybe it is. Well, I I think that whenever I read Arendt, because Arendt, of course, exp- explicitly declaims violence, wants there to be this kind of agonism, but wants it tame. You know, I always go, well, the only way that it could be tame is if these are purely aesthetic values that people don't really care about. If if people really cared about them, then it would get hot, and you'd need some kind of restraint on that. Uh, or it would just be spiraling violence, which I mean, is what Arendt worries need, about. You absolutely need like a system, and you absolutely need like laws and stuff, right? Well, I think Nietzsche Nietzsche just kind of wants wants the free for all. Nietzsche wants the Mad Max. Yeah, I, I always read Nietzsche as just straightforwardly going, "Yeah, of course, there's going to be uh, endless, endless violence if we." do this because there will be no adjudicating mechanism of avoiding it that everyone will agree to because if everyone were to agree to that adjudicating mechanism that would be itself the same kind of of uh, hegemony that that Nietzsche doesn't want i think that the problem is that pluralism if you actually instantiate it becomes non-pluralistic it becomes the same kind of dogma which Nietzsche is trying to throw off and to really throw off all dogma is to be okay with a world of Endless violence. I don't think so. I think it's so. hard to avoid that. I think I think maybe this is a question of the relationship between pluralism and perspectivalism. I think, you know, the you know, in Nietzsche's words, like the stronger you are, the better able you are to to cope with or understand or reflect upon, you know, different ways of seeing things. But does that lead you to a normative response of tolerance or acceptance? I don't think it does. This is the thing, though, with like the philosophical revolution, rather than like a merely philosophical uh, political one, is that like I like so not not naming names, but some people um, sort of like spend their time railing against everybody who who doesn't have the perfect, you know, the dishon- who who's dishonest because they 
say that they're a leftist, but they actually participate. But then actually, like it kind of oper- like the reality operates like at a different level. Like you can that 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 obsession is almost more tied into the toxic market system than people who sort of lower the stakes on what they're doing and just sort of participate knowing it's bad. I don't know where I was going with this. But I the point being is that like I think there is a way to both participate and like arbitrarily take up a position or whatever and to not hold it so tightly. There is like a, there is a philosophical route to get you to that point. I th- I think on some level a lot of this is just petty nothingness. Like a lot of what people are committed to doesn't make any difference. Like these minor differentiations of aesthetic commitment or physical being or whatever i mean that they're completely irrelevant um in terms of how they might differentiate you from any anyone else i mean just as all identity politics is basically kind of a cover story for fundamental truths or you know i mean and divisive politics are obviously not in favor of um the vast majority of people i mean all these forms of division are just kind of um they're very useful for people who would like there to be lots of resentment and opposition. And I think what one of the things that Nietzsche is diagnosing is precisely how easy it is to create resentment, you know, and to suggest that um, there's a huge amount of difference between one set of desires and another. Um, I mean, what he says is that resentment is an incredibly motivating force historically, you know, that it's actually incredibly um, easy and um, useful to... um, generate resentment and that it has incredibly powerful consequences but he's not saying it's that difference is in a sense um i don't know i mean in a way difference is what there is like we are all different i i read him to be suggesting that the kind of value artists the master class they create these city-states and communities where people have values that they've created and generated for them and which they've imposed through cultivation of things like resentment, that the wolves rule and dominate the sheep culturally, intellectually, by creating values and inducing the sheep to hold those values. Um, but I think there is a, there's also a question of nature. I mean, when Nietzsche talks about the eagle and the lamb in the genealogy of morality, it's like, the eagle doesn't hate the lamb, <laughs> you know. No, it's just in the eagle's nature to dominate. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and I think that's what he's arguing, that for some people it is just in their nature to pursue dominion. But but the, the, the point is, I think, in the genealogy that this has shifted from a kind of Greek model of, you know, the pure expression of a certain kind of being to a kind of, you know, clever, intellectualized, hidden form of domination, right, which preys upon and results more so the fact is that you can mobilize bad feeling and you can give it a fancy name so how do you make people feel guilty like guilt is originally a debt it's an economic material debt it's like you owe someone some money you get you make it fancy and you say you've got a bad conscience you know it's like your debt is guilt you know shuld is like a negative religious feeling so you it you turn a material relation into a kind of moral um way of life and that's the cleverness that's the innovation yeah i I don't think nietzsche's bothered so much by that move as a move but by the degree to which it's become totalizing and therefore 
stifled the potentiality of new heroes emerging, new kind of value entrepreneurs emerging. I think what bothers him about Plato and Platonism is the degree to which it, in his view, has become universal, rather than just its existence as one particular value power matrix. Yeah, I mean, he has a problem explaining how things go from like uh, an expansive, beautiful, um, body celebratory, um, healthy culture to a kind of um, creepy, you know, inside dark culture, right? He has to explain how things have gone wrong. And it's very, very difficult to do that because... If you say, look, there's this great Greek culture and it was wonderful, then why would it ever go wrong? It's the same question that um, lots of men's rights activists have in not being able to explain why men ever ever gave up power over women. It's like, if it was such a bad idea, why would you ever have let women have any freedom whatsoever? If you see what I mean. Like, if it was the right thing to do to just, um, you know, treat women as property and exhibit dominion and, you know, look after them in both senses of the word, right? So to treat them both as um so- someone to look after but also as your property like why would you ever give up on that you know why didn't because it would have had to be men if men were all powerful then men would have also have to be the ones to give up on um having that power over women so this is one of the paradoxes of explaining the diminution or the the end of patriarchy well yeah i think that that there's this productive tension between on the one hand genuinely wanting to have power and to get people to do what you want. And on the other hand, enjoying the resistance and the contribution which the other makes in the dialogue, which is always always inherently somewhat coercive. I think that really what I think deep down is that all human interactions involve a power element. Even human interactions which are seemingly pluralistic and liberal and friendly that there's always some element in every conversation that's about trying to get other people to think like you or to be like you or to do what you would do if you were them, and that we we never totally get away from that element. It's just that we don't that what makes life interesting is the fact that we we don't just straightforwardly succeed when we try to persuade people or when we try to make people do what we want. It's the tension between trying and 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 not knowing if you will succeed and never totally being able to succeed. Yeah. That there's a kind of joy in never fully getting there. But that joy is complemented by a constant attempt to get there, even though, of course, if you did get there, it would not be what you want. So we, we, we have to both try to dominate and make sure that we can't fully succeed. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. And I think these... I mean, in a way, media and culture is precisely about this perpetuation of this game. And I mean, Baudrillard, I think uh, more than anyone else, perhaps talks about this. No, not only Baudrillard, but I think also um, the Husinger book, Homo Ludens, and the idea that man is a game-playing animal. You know, I talk, I'm really interested in that. I talked about this a lot in my book on men. It, it's in the end a question of what games you're playing to some extent and you know like in seduction in the book from the late 70s the Baudrillard talks about it he precisely makes this point about the various forms of power you know he says that women have never lacked power and that actually women have intense immense power it's just um 
harder to describe in a certain way. But women can get men to do almost anything. <laughs> you you can. I, I think you can really see it in the way that people play video games. No? <laughs> yeah. Nobody nobody wants to easily win the game. At that the game yeah. gets very boring very quickly if you can win it too easily. Yeah. Right? At the same time, you don't want to not win. You don't want to just lose the game. Uh, so what you what you want is to win the game, but in a way which is difficult, and you never want the game to end. So you don't really want to fully win it. You want to win it and then have new DLC come out and have new new stuff come out so that you have more to do. Absolutely, this is this is enjoyment in psychoanalysis. It's um, you, you need the obstacle to generate desire. Mm-hmm. And it has to be it has to be difficult enough, but then also you have to be able to. It has to be a possibility. <laughs> I'm like really interested in. It's terrible. I have like a real, really enjoy looking at real estate. But obviously this year, unexpectedly, perhaps. But obviously there's logic to it. Like houses are way more expensive. Like the prices have gone up ridiculously. So that's lost all pleasure. Because you, you, you know, <laughs> if it's just too expensive, you're like, well, this is just a fucking joke. There's no, there's no carrot at all. You know, but the obstacle is the thing that, you know, that, that it's expensive enough generates desire for it. But if it's too expensive, then it's like, well, what's the fucking point? Mm. Yes. Nina, you, you play a lot of Civilization V, right? <laughs> yes. When you play Civilization V, what victory do you gen- generally go for? Culture. Interesting. Yeah, or, or actually diplomacy. I When I play Greece, I go for diplomacy like absolute domination through um excessive relationality bribes um you know i give all of my surplus to city states so that they will repay me in luxuries um so yeah so if i pick greece which is my favorite then i you know hardcore diplomacy basically very easy to win in that way actually um because then you can get and when the un vote kicks in or the vote you can just get 26 or 32 civs to vote with you um culture secondarily so if i play france i will do absolute domination through culture um (laughs) and i suppose the one the victory i really would like would be elizabeth the first which would be um through the seas through the armada but it's very very hard to win that way polynesia too is also a um maritime what about you, Benjamin? <laughs> well, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to win by uh, culture or space race or diplomacy. Uh, but as you start to put the difficulty up, because mm. initially you'll win very easily on the low difficulty levels. If you just build the right buildings, it's easy enough, right? Uh, but then as you start to put the difficulty up, if you try to do it that way, you just get invaded by the AI. Yeah. Right. And so before long, the fact that you tend to get invaded by the AI changes the way that I think people tend to play the game. Uh, either you back off the difficulty level or you, you have to have a more muscular military attitude to the game. And gradually, the longer you play Civ, I think, the, the more it tends to get people to be more comfortable with pursuing domination victories. But domination through science, though, also, because you can't, I mean, the thing is, it's like, it gets incredibly boring. And I suppose that's why I prefer the diplomacy or culture route on King, like, or whatever, like the lower things, right? I don't play it on the very hardest things. Because it's so boring. 
it's so boring to pursue the science, like, because everything tends towards the same, because this is what science does. Uh, you know, science and domination. So, like, basically, science and technology are just war. And basically, the only way to get, like, the very advanced um, weapons is through science, basically. Right. Right. So, yeah, when you make the game competitive enough, it then causes you to play it differently. Yeah. But it's yeah. very boring. You know, like, and then the then the turns go really long and really slow. But if you back it off and and go on an easier difficulty level, then then it's too easy. But it's more beautiful. Then things like religion are important. Then if you send like you know great prophets out, you can convince them to adopt you know anal or whatever stupid name you've given your religion. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's incredibly funny, and it's like you know your priest has spread anal to. 200 people in this other city or whatever no and it's a much more like beautiful game <laughs> i have literally no idea i know i'm you sure you have no idea what we're talking about. about yeah i know i know what is this game civilization <laughs> civilization five sid my it's it's an amazing amazing game it's like... <laughs> it, it does actually sound pretty good <laughs> yeah you, you build a you build a country from the stone age to the space age and mm. there are a number of different ways to win and different ways of winning reflect different attitudes to life and you can choose different civilizations and there are kind of great wonders and, you know, yeah. it, and, and basically it kind of picks um, different civs at the highest point of their, like, gold, like their greatness, right? So it would be, you know, so some of the early great civs would be like Egypt or Rome or, you know, and, but you also have like confusing places like Venice, which are like kind of floating city-state civs and I don't know, there are loads of mods. Anyway, <clears throat> um <laughs> it's a great game. It and it's amazing. always interesting to know who somebody who you like to play. So Nina likes to play the Greeks and the French. Yeah. When I was a kid, I liked to play the Greeks and the French. Yeah. And as I got older, I find myself always playing the Romans. Right. Yeah. 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 My friend Daniel plays the Romans. Always. It's just yeah. like a personality test, like a Buzzfeed. You go on and you say, "Which garlic bread are you?" <laughs> <laughs> garlic bread with cheese. Um. Yeah, no, I think it probably is very revealing. And um... I think games really teach us a lot about what people want, because with games, you really do have, you can set the difficulty level, you can decide what kind of game to play. You have a lot of ability to display what it is that you want in the games you choose to play and how you choose to play them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, everything, everything's slightly um, indirectly, find things out about people indirectly. I've never played, I've, I've never played, the only video games I've ever played is like, in the 90s, we had worms on the computer. A very uh, interestingly destructive, nihilistic game. Very Yeah, it was, um, it's actually very good. I, it is, I was thinking about it recently, you like, you, you basically like destroy things in all kinds of interesting ways. I always say, though, that I feel like me and my sisters were brought up like boys. I feel like I do, I don't know. I, I think never... every girl thinks this though. This is one of the very <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I mean paradoxical things. It's like there are very few girls who are actually brought up as girls. Like mm -hmm. if you saw what I mean, that would be like a hyper feminine childhood. You know, I that do would be know, somehow... I know of somebody whose mother believes that um, logic and reason are not for women, and that girls are only can only be in their emotions and. Um, they must be positive at all times, and you can imagine what joys that brought for that child. I mean, hopefully, that child is now a, like a professor of logic at the <laughs> school of <laughs> autism studies. In, <you> know. 
Britannia or something. Um, but this is the thing. I mean, do you do you feel like a woman, Nina? Do you? Um, increasingly, if only by sort of like um, natural default in a certain way. I mean, you know, I, um, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like a particularly good one in certain ways. Like, you know, I'm not married. I don't have children. Like, I haven't <laughs> done that. Um, but, but sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I actually, in a way, I really like being a woman. I, I think it's very strange and interesting. And, and even the kind of, um, slightly, um, you know, horror film aspects of it in terms of the bleeding and the, nature and the you know the cyclical relation to one's own being I kind of like it <laughs> and I feel increasingly sort of like witchy and <laughs> I no honestly I yeah. I don't know I I think there's a way in which um modernity sort of or whatever we want to call it um sort of alienates people from their own bodies and mm-hmm. you know in so many different ways and and even you know from the idea of sexual difference and because there's a kind of confusion about what equality means because actually equality might you know plays out or could potentially play out in about 20 different ways but it doesn't mean that people aren't different right yeah, so exactly. i think i think there's a fundamental problem in which or a, a kind of cognitive dissonance where you sort of like i'm equal but different or whatever and um and therefore sometimes you sort of seek to deny your difference or you try to pretend it's not important or you know and i think there's a form of um, mainstream feminism which is sort of like that which is kind of like just pretend that you're not different and never complain about you know like the idea of complaining about menstruation or even mentioning it would be so embarrassing as to like make render you sort of um inadequate vis-a-vis contemporary society or something um but i think to to yeah i don't know i think I sort of like it. I <laughs> I don't know. I, I think being a woman is absolutely fucking great. No, I really do. I would definitely not trade it in to be a man. But I don't think I don't even know what a woman is and I don't really feel like I am one. So who, who even fucking knows? But, but in a way, I think nobody sort of... Like, the thing is, it's psychotic to say that you are anything, right? Yeah. Like, nobody is a man or woman, right? Like, no, like, what would it mean in a static situation? Like... I think to say there is sexual difference is not to adopt or to believe in anything in a way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it, it means almost nothing. It, it, it certainly doesn't determine, and this would be the second way point, it doesn't determine anything about you. It doesn't say what you like or what you're into or who you are. Absolutely. Whatsoever. Which is the funny, the funny sort of paradox about um, contemporary sort of gender issues is that they are more. Um, well, I don't even obsessive is the wrong word, but like it's obsessively deterministic. Let's just say, and like that that it, it's like a, it's a it's it's a categorical like clinging to an actual category that actually exists. Um, so it's a weird thing of going from you know gender as a social construct, or whatever, to like actually the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. The reification of this um, idea of of gender. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it's it's I think inhibiting and upsetting. But this is this is the thing, like to go back to sort of maybe like the rule of law and everything in the in, in the West and everything, and sort of like symbolic order and everything. It's like it is just funny that so to destruct these sort of you know the primary pole of meaning, the first word is mama, mama, dada, whatever you know, the man and the woman. 
but to actually destruct that leads to, or to, to sort of erode that, or it's like this is meaningless or whatever, actually leads to a greater clinging on to or a greater kind of like certainty that that is an actual thing than if it's just like necessarily there. And then you can kind of like, yeah, it, it, it's just this weird dichotomy of like the, the gender question. Yeah, because there's this, there's this issue with on the one hand saying that you have to have a rooted individualistic identity that's grounded in these different things. And then uh, on the other side, eroding the significance of those categories as distinct categories. So you're, you're kind of being pushed to construct an identity around these categories, while at the same time you're being asked to take the categories less seriously and to stop reifying them, right? You know, so we end up with a situation where there is, of course, heavy male or female socialization encouragement of people of the male and female sex to conform to a particular social paradigm. But there's always going to be people who don't fit into that paradigm neatly and who experience a tension between the way they're socialized and uh, the way they feel. And I think that because we tell people they have to have some kind of powerful identity around this, that tension becomes a bigger problem than it would be if people weren't feeling the need to identify as strongly with a gender. Yeah. You know, the idea that you need to have a gender identity makes it a problem exactly. when there is discrepancy between how you feel and the way people of your sex are generally socialized. I think it's much better just to say to people that life is really hard. Becoming a teenager is absolutely awful for everyone. <laughs> that, really that, you know, that no one strictly identifies with being a man or woman that actually being either of those things is absolutely terrible for everyone you know to actually um to to say how hard it is really you know and, and that, to say you don't have to have an identity that's this no. whole like i'm an individual and i'm separate from other no people no one's and an I'm individual <laughs> yeah you don't have to have an identity people don't have to think about the world ontologically in this way no especially not when they're like 12 i mean if you say to a 12 year old you must decide who you are it's like that's that's unbelievably unfair yeah, it's, it's horrendous but the thing is it's people are see, see themselves in terms of a product for the market like who are they on social media what's their brand identity who are they um and actually it's like you know this is the i was going to include something about um you know, law and order and sort of police and everything in that intervention, but I thought I shouldn't given the moment. But, um, you know, that like, you don't, that A, there's nothing, there's nothing there as in you need, you actually have to establish some kind of symbolic order, but it's not real, you know. And then if we erode it, we just strive more greatly to instigate something more um, subtle or more, you know, so that, that Mark's passage where he's talking about the patriarchy being eroded by um by effectively capital like you know you just you replace that for something much more insidious and actually much more um egregiously steadfast ironically yeah I, the point that Nina made earlier everybody could be liberty valence everybody has what liberty valence has in them and it's just really a question of what kind of environment are you in, right? And whether you are in an institutional setting which encourages or discourages or enables or disables different tendencies. And for me, that that's a big part of why I always pay attention to institutions and why I think institutions are important. 
you know, I know that if I am, if I'm not rooted in some kind of moral realism and some kind of institutional scheme, I tend to tell people what to do too much. And I tend to push people around a bit. And, you know, left to my own devices, I can sometimes ruin people around me just by, by constantly, constantly pushing them to be more like myself. And, and I know that. And, and I know that I need to be restrained by a belief that I shouldn't do that and by institutions which make it harder for me to do that. And and I think that most people, if they're honest with themselves, can recognize some level of that. And a, a big part of the trouble is uh, in left-wing organizing, especially in the United States, there's a tendency to believe that you just have to find the right kind of people who aren't motivated by that kind of stuff, who aren't like that. And then you don't have to worry about complicated institutional questions about how to restrain behavior. You just need to find the good people. But this is the stupidity of individualism and essentialism. You know, it's like, it's this sort of like, you're, you know, you, you are you either genetically or just like born with or like marked by this sort of personal, this is who you are rather than like being a product of your environment or that people sort of have more similarities than they don't in the order of their subjectival functioning. But I think people, people do have fundamental tendencies. I mean, like the Oracle of Delphi says, know thyself. I think what Benjamin is saying is like, you know, in a way to recognize these tendencies, differential tendencies. Like, I have no desire whatsoever to tell anyone what to do. Like, I can't imagine anything worse, right? And I, I look, there's a strong part of me that would just like to be drunk and half asleep all the time, right? Like, I, you know, seriously, I, I, I do struggle with this kind of, like, almost constant desire for a kind of oblivion, which is a sort of, like, absolutely, um, uh, you know, um, I want to absolutely avoid responsibility whatsoever. Like, I don't want to take responsibility for even myself, right? Let alone tell other people what to do or, you know. So, so like, but I think, but that's the kind of form of self-knowledge that it seems to me that, that Benjamin is also kind of referring to. Like, but there's a kind of form of um, psychoanalytic, like almost Aristotelian, um, I don't know, process, which is completely absent today, right? Like, so, so people just rock up doing politics as if, like, their intentions are pure and that there's no sort of psychoanalytical or individual element. And when, when of course, it's, uh, then, the, then the problem is it just becomes a form of expression for these kind of pathological desires, which is precisely why we are all potentially liberty valence, right? And the valence between um, violence and civilization is what humanity is. Like, and and we all have these um uh, we all have the potential as it were to be both um insanely destructive not only of ourselves but also of the social which is what lycanthropy represented the wolf represented for hobbes so i think i mentioned before but lycanthropy you know the wolf in hobbes is melancholia it's the antisocial man which is a possibility of all humanity right so the moment we regard ourselves as um outside of because we're so sad or because we don't feel like we're belonging we, you know we're not part of the social we become a threat to the social order but it's a fundamental tendency so man is a wolf to man it's like we are ourselves a wolf to ourselves no absolutely i, I think the thing is when i say like you know there's more that we have in common or whatever than we do it's like the thing that we have in common is that we all have a tendency like as you say we are all marked by a, whatever circumstance within our early years that that gives us a certain kind of chick. There's no pure being. There's no good person or bad person. Um, yeah, absolutely. I t entirely agree with you. 
Yeah, and we catch people when they're tired or they just don't quite have the energy that they would normally have. They've been put in a situation that is too stressful for too long. And no matter how well someone tries to cultivate virtue or to discipline themselves, I think that if you put people in the wrong situations for long enough, whatever it is that is their their thing that they do when they're liberty valance, I think that thing can always come out. And a big part of why we have such a nasty criminal justice system is this unwillingness to to reckon with, you know, if when somebody does something like that, as a society, we've created a situation in which they could no longer feel part of things, yeah. in which they were under so much stress and so much pressure that they did the worst thing they're capable of doing. And then we define them by the fact that they did that thing, and we consign them to a dustbin. Absolutely. Like, is there, have you ever seen one of these viral, whatever, Karen videos that is anything other than somebody having like the worst day of their life or having like a mental health crisis or something. It's just, it, it, and it's it's so satisfying to be, instead of, as you say, to be like, our society has generated this or somebody feels like, you know, so stressed by, you know, their conditions. And it's so easy to say that that's, that's out there and that's somebody else who is essentially like that and aren't they just depraved and awful? rather than it being sort of a reflection of our own society that we all live in. Yeah, and the extraordinary catharsis people get out of projecting all of that stuff onto somebody else and then throwing that person away. Uh, and by throwing them away, to throw away the things in themselves that they don't want to reckon with and the things in their society that they don't want to reckon with. Turning people into avatars for all the things we don't like so that we can burn them. Yeah, absolutely. But, but the funny thing is, is we don't want them. There has to be a constant stream of them, because if we got rid of them all, we'd realize that that hasn't solved anything. So you have to have a constant stream of, or you might change the goalposts on what is despicable in a given era. But yeah, you always have right. to have somebody. So as soon as you lock up one policeman, then another policeman shoots somebody else, and then you get to do it again. Yeah. Yes, rather than looking at what it is about American society that creates the conditions where people are driven to be in this or end up in a situation, it's um, yeah, it's absolutely horrendous. Yeah, it's absolutely the the system that creates these awful, awful situations of people being shot. Shall we end it there? All right. So thank you guys so much for listening. And, of course, we're going to go and do the B-side for our Patreon supporters. If you go to Patreon, you can help us out, back up the show. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.